Welcome to the Relentless Minds podcast with Lori Jimenez, a platform where influential entrepreneurs get real and share their stories of challenges in life that they've had to face head on and conquer in order to be where they are today. Here, you'll get an inside look at the adversities that these individuals have experienced or are currently dealing with, in addition to their opinions on real life matters and philosophies in life. Most importantly, you'll learn what it takes to have a relentless mind so that you too can stay headstrong in your pursuit of a better future. In this podcast, you're going to get 100% authenticity from people that have figured out how to beat the noise that society creates and have a higher level of self-mastery. Hi, welcome back to the Relentless Minds podcast. Today I have with me Dr. Ellie Katz. Dr. Ellie Katz is a leading practitioner of holistic psychotherapy. For the last 40 years, her eclectic interventions have featured innovative approaches to using meditation, guided thinking, and the Bach flower remedies. With decades of working in the field, Dr. Ellie Katz has concluded that self-sabotage is part of the human condition and that we are all that we all have attachments we'd be better without. In her writing, as author of three books, Dr. Katz sets out to tackle the everyday face of addiction, exploring root causes, personal struggles, and the gift of recovery. Dr. Katz, thank you so much for being here today. How are you? I'm fine. It's my pleasure, Lori. So what are we going to talk about today? <laughs> we are going to talk about your expertise in helping people go from addiction to recovery. Um, and I know that you're right now you're working in a rehab center, right? And you're yes. actually in yes. Israel. So you're working at a rehab center in Israel. Is that right? Yes, it's a true story. Yeah. How Definitely. are you liking that? I've been here about 16 years and it's my passion. I love the work. I love it every day. It's interesting and different. Every one of the patients here has a different story. It's never boring or dull. And it's a challenge to help people walk through the uh, tunnel of light to uh, get out of that mess. That and you, big mess. Yeah. You work with all sorts of conditions, right? Obsessive disorders, um, sure. addictions, and yeah. like even low self-esteem and low confidence and things like that? Well, for sure. For sure. And we don't differentiate between the addictions. Mm -hmm. You could be working with someone who's addicted to another person, someone who's addicted to their phobia, someone who's addicted to um, a substance, or irrespective of what you're addicted to, and it's got a hold on you, and we know how to work with that, mm. how to give you the inspiration and hope mm -hmm. to uh, live life in a different way. So tell me about that. Tell me about the approaches you're, you have your, you're saying that it's all, you know, you don't differentiate between these addictions when it comes to treating them though. And you, you know, we were speaking about this beforehand, but how, you have human, human tendencies, right? Human conditions that oftentimes will lead to these obsessive or addictive personalities or, or actions. So when it comes to treating that, can you 
explain a little bit more about what in your experience you've been able to see helps? Okay. What helps is first to help people understand that change is possible. Many people come here quite beaten by their lives, by the ridiculous situations they've gotten into, by life-threatening things that have happened, and many of them have overdosed. And, of course, the next they gone and look for the next fix. Uh, people have uh, amassed huge gambling debts. Everyone is angry with them, but they go on, whether it's scratching the lottery ticket or uh, finding a casino or betting which ant will walk faster across the room than the other ant and put some money on that. Um, everybody has to believe that they can get better. That's bottom line. Everybody has to have hope and optimism. Since the future doesn't exist, why think it couldn't be better? Mm. And I'm into, if you, if you see my book, When Sane People Do Insane Things, I've broken it down to what I think are six essential building blocks to your health and well-being. And the first one is good mood. You have to harness good mood. You have to build up an arsenal of things that make you happy, that keep you afloat spiritually and psychologically with a sense of hope and enthusiasm and want to do this. Mm-hmm. You know, many people are excited about something and then that excitement dies down, and where are they? And ah, I don't want to do it. It'll never work. Yeah. I've seen so many relapses. Why bother? Takes a long time. There's a lot of deprivation. I don't want to be sober. Why are you dragging me into this? That happens too. But if you're in a good mood and you're enthusiastic and you're hopeful and you're inspired, because the people that are working with you, the counselors and other parts of the staff are many of them recovered addicts. So wait a minute. Huh. If he could do it, maybe I could do it. Yeah. There it is. Absolutely. So that's the first of the six steps. That's the first of the six essentials. The second one is relaxation because if you're wild, if you can't quiet your mind, then you're going to be running scripts all day about the past, about the future, nothing about now. And you're full of anxiety, full of shame, and there you are getting nowhere. Gotcha. And that, that's why one of your approaches makes sense is meditation. Because meditation is so important in regarding, regarding calming your mind, staying focused, having your being present, right, with what is yeah. going on in front of you and, you know, how to, how to approach that and having that in that moment. Do you mind sharing the other four steps? You've mentioned no, good mood, good mood, rel- relaxation. relaxation. So love and kindness. 
love and kindness. Uh, there's so much hatred. There's so much negativity in the world. People aren't kind. There's so many factions. There's so many historical feuds, borders, national pride. Uh, you did this to me. I can't forgive you kind of thing. And um, we're very suspicious of strangers. What does that person want from me? And I'm out there talking about love and kindness because it's so nourishing. It's such a gorgeous environment. It, it, it promotes the best things on the planet when you're loving and kind and smiling and caring. It's gorgeous. Absolutely. Absolutely. You don't usually that. hear psychologists talking about that, but I'm uh, definitely promoting it. What do you think about um, the approach of focusing on a pain point? Because I've heard people out there saying you have to make the pain to not act hard or, or more intense than it would be to act because making these changes and, you know, obviously the relapse and, or, or um, having to deal with just um, staying away from what you want, like these addictions, right? It's hard to do. It can be physically painful. So what do you consider, what do you think about that? Because that also... I've never heard this expression, really? pain point, no, or I've never heard of that. Uh, no, I'm not familiar with it. Uh -huh. So if so, you want to explain that to me or we want to go to another dimension, we're fine. I've never heard of the expression, pain point. So there's, there's a... There's, a, there's just some people that they say about focusing on the pain, the pain that it's causing you to be addicted to this or to be mm -hmm. following your course in life um, where, you know, you're, you're an aggressive person and, or like if you're not financially stable and the discomfort that that causes. So, but your approach is more so about love and kindness and about making that your focus. Sure. In order Rather for that to than, be healing. Although, Lori, it is very important. It's something that doesn't give you peace of mind because you can't get over the shame of what you've done, that you're carrying terrible, terrible guilt or uh, trauma. Mm -hmm. And, of course, that's your pain. But Absolutely. we don't focus on that because... Uh, mm -hmm. Everybody's got pain. Everybody's been humiliated. Everybody has had failure in their life. Everyone has had disappointment, uh, shock and trauma, of course, part of being alive. Uh, some people's way of handling it is to uh, alter their mind. So mind-altering mm -hmm. substances, drinking or smoking pot or whatever, or people are terribly, terribly bored, or people are um, oversexed and all involved with that. It's hard to say that everyone has to find their pain and then their addiction will evaporate. Mm. No. Yeah, that's a good point. 
that's a very good point because the the pain is what's causing them to stay in that addiction and stay in that in that life pattern right well what happens with addiction is it gets a life of its own so what initially caused you to turn to heroin to make such an extreme life choice uh, the reason becomes irrelevant because you have to serve the devil, that master, to mm. keep using heroin because getting off of it is so horrible. Gotcha. Gotcha. And so just to go back to these, these six, because I actually want to continue on what you were mentioning sure. about this addiction. Number four from your six Number points. Number four is forgiveness. And this is a very hard one to master. Very hard to master. People don't forgive themselves. People don't forgive other people. They hold on to grudges. You started it. It's unforgivable. And ultimately, that's going to hold you back. Your grudges, your righteous indignation, your memory the unforgivable, and again, with yourself, you could be relentlessly unforgiving. Hmm. And I want to tap into that. It's such terrible things. Yes. Yep. Yep. So you're not going to let yourself off the spiritual hook. <sighs> Incredible. Number, and number five? Number five is flexibility. You can't change if you're not flexible. If you're rigidly adhering to the thing that you know, even if it's horrible, but it's familiar, it's what you do. It's what you do. So it is rigid. It has no flexibility. It's not sometimes take it or leave it. It's always do it. Mm. So to change, you need to be very malleable and very flexible. Perfect. And the sixth of the six essentials is discipline. Mm -hmm. Because if you're enthusiastic at the beginning and it's a new project and it sounds really jazzy and you're full of hope and you're full of expectations and you don't have the discipline to go the distance, like you're bored, like, oh... This is tedious. Oh, this again. Oh, sobriety. Oh, it means I can't use. Oh, keep it. Stage. I'd rather use. This boring. I don't want to do this. So I haven't got the discipline. I haven't got the flexibility. I can't forgive myself, so why am I even bothering? I don't feel loving and kind. I feel angry. My mind can't quiet down, and what's there to be happy about? So that's wow. all the reverse of the six essentials, which I call the inner saboteurs or the six hazards. And we all are familiar with all versions of this. We know it well. That's incredible. I love that. So you were able, obviously, with your experience and treating patients you were able to see what broke them down and what caused them to not progress. And then just, sure. you know, those are the things that they need just to do the opposite of. So they need to 
be able to have that good, put themselves in a good mood, be happy, be excited, right? And then be able to quiet their mind, which is number two, have put themselves in a state of relaxation. Sure. And number three is um, love and kindness and having that emotion, that happy and loving of emotions towards the world, towards others, towards themselves, which goes into number four, which is forgiveness. Mm-hmm. And then number five is having the flexibility of, of switching up their daily routines, right? Not just sticking to what they know and what they've been doing that's been leading them in the same course. And then number six is discipline, is to stick with with their their goal mm-hmm. and with the productive steps that they've been taking towards recovery. Absolutely. Absolutely. But unfortunately, the statistics are not that impressive. People drop out a lot or people finish and then there are those anxieties or triggers and maybe you're feeling lonely and things are not working out and then you go back to what's familiar, that self-soothing, which turns into a self-sabotage because once you're acting against your greater good, you're sabotaging your chances mm-hmm. to ever feel like a person you admire. Hmm. Why do you think that is? Why do you think that that self-sabotage is, like you say, it seems to be part of the human condition? Because we need to comfort ourselves. And if you haven't learned how to comfort yourself properly, how to speak to yourself with great love and respect, you don't know how to be your own internal cheerleader you're going to go back to your old ways Hmm. and do you think that can that in itself is a problem that goes back to like the root causes of that could be family related like background cultural any number of things but again the the most powerful is, oh, when I do that, I don't care. When I get stoned like that, I don't give a damn. Mm -hmm. When I get drunk like that or whatever, and obviously it isn't going to work because the next minute that you finish doing it, and then what? Mm -hmm. I remember once um, I had four children, thank God, and one of them one of them was really angry with mommy and she slammed the door and i said to one of my sons i'm going to go knock on her door and he said to me mom and then what i said what do you mean and then what i'm going to knock on her door he said but if you don't know and then what don't knock on her door you have no you have no plan so when people relapse they think oh man i'm gonna i'm gonna smoke that joint and i'm gonna feel good and i'm not gonna care that she insulted me or that i just lost my job i'm not gonna care yeah yeah but when it's over and then what and then what exactly Exactly. And then you don't think, hey, in the long run, it's affecting you. No, of course not. More than anything. Yeah. They don't think that far. And I think that's just 
that's just human nature. Just take this simple example of um, the overeater, okay? The compulsive overeater. Food is a benign substance. It's something you do from the first day of life till you die. You have to eat. We have demonized food. We have mythologized food with all the cooking shows and all the restaurants and all the huh. advertising. Okay, and lots and lots of people get addicted to sugar and flour and oil and whatever. Okay, yes. it's it's a nothing thing, but people, when they're addicted to food, always think that they're going to feel better with the Oreos. They're going to feel better when they eat the pint of Haagen Dazs, but when they finish eating it, it's a very short high. Then what? Yeah, yep. It feels good while you're doing it. Yeah, then, while you're doing it. And then at the end, it's, you feel horrible and you feel guilty. You feel horrible, you feel guilty because you would just announce to everybody that for the wedding of your niece, you're going to lose 20 pounds. And uh-oh, you've got your face in the Haagen-Dazs or the Ben and & Jerry's, <laughs> and then you lie to yourself and you go, tomorrow, tomorrow, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not doing this again. Goodness. Uh, and you do. do. Of course you and do. it's interesting, though, because I never even thought about that, how, um, you know, especially in America, how they just put so much attention and emphasis on food, right? With all of the commercials, with all of the advertisements and the large, huge, large platters of food and how uh-huh. it's just like giving you, like telling you, like, this is, this is what life is about. Like just eating your heart out. Okay, and then do I have to mention beauty and sexuality? Yeah. It's all over the place. It's all over the place. I was on my way to work today, and I was driving, and I saw from the back this girl bouncing down the street. And she had beautiful long hair. I guess she had it straightened. And she was wearing these tight jeans and little tank tops. And she was just bouncing down the road, and I thought, gee, I'm 70. When I grew up, somebody who looked like that was looking for trouble. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's true. Yeah, and, and nowadays, because people want to start dressing like that. Yeah, they like a 12-year-old. A 12-year-old wants to dress like that. Or these new kind of short shorts with half your tush hanging out. I, I can't know. believe my eyes. I, know. I can't believe my eyes. I know. I it's... must be, you know, in my old age, I'm getting conservative. <laughs> no, I absolutely understand you. And it's just because, like, it's be- it's being put out there on, like, online, on TV. It's just becoming normalized oh. at this point. And it's, it is worrisome. To see where things can go. Lori, look, I live in Israel and there are many religious Jewish people here. They will not allow a smartphone. They have something called kosher phones. There's no internet on it. There's no uh, seductive stuff or in any way something that would endanger their mind. But regular cell phones today you can see pornography you don't have to go to the porn shop and sneak in you're there it's in your hand Uh, that sounded a little frisky it's in your hand (laughs) you're so funny (laughs) 
<laughs> you know, but you mentioned a good, a good thing, a good point, because as a, a host on this podcast, um, we're talking about addictions to habits that break you down, right? Like, they're, like they're just kind of they like ruin, ruin your life. Your life. They, they ruin, ruin your, your life. life. But also on the other end, even about that relent resilience, right? And that like relentless mindset towards mm -hmm. achieving something can also be detrimental, right? Like people who work 14, 15 hours a day, okay. every day, don't get any sleep. And they're just, they're just zeroed in. That's kind of the same thing, would you say? Like an addiction? Okay, so of course you can be addicted to work. It's called workaholic. And you can be addicted to people, and it's called codependence, or it's called stalking. Mm. And it's pretty scary stuff. It's just not being in balance. It's unharmonious. I wanted to tell you that I'm here many, many years at the rehab, and there was a time when the men that I worked with were alcoholics and drug addicts. Many of them had been thieves. Many of them had been in jail for years. Today, at least half of my male patients are gamblers. Wow. And <gasps> most of their gambling is the lottery tickets. They're not even at the races. They're not even at the casino. No. They're either with the lottery or they're gambling on their telephones. Yep. Yep. It's that addictive. I've, I mean, and I've kind of seen this. It's like an addictive personality, right? Like whatever it is that they go into, it seems like they just go in with like laser focus and they just, and it doesn't, like it's still damaging to you, but, oh. it's, but they still do it. Like I've seen that also with even people that I've gotten to know personally that were before, um, drug alcohol or, or, or drug addicts or, or alcoholics. And then they switch, they find their savior in fitness and then like they're fitness extremists and they're just doing it every day for hours a day. And it's yeah. like the, like weighing all their meals, tracking all their meals, like every okay, so little. I have that with my anorexic girls, mostly women. They weigh and measure their food. They know exactly how to burn the calories of what they just ate. Hmm. And they're relentless, relentless about being thin hmm. and being in control. But they're, in fact, completely out of control. It's a tricky, tricky kind of irony here because they want to be in control of their food, of their intake, of their calorie output, of their musculature. And they think they're in control, but they don't have a negotiable relationship with any of this. Mm. They can't take it or leave it or stop doing it. They're committed to their addiction. Yeah. You know, it's crazy. And it's, and, you know, you mentioning this about like the control, having to have control. Like these qualities I've seen that people have, like having to, be in control of things and having to have everything be a certain way or having a codependency. Like I've seen patterns and I'm no doctor. I've seen patterns in that with their upbringing, with family issues, with mm -hmm. um, a lack of 
control when they were growing up because their father was very oppressive and um, it was just a lot of just turmoil growing up. So now mm-hmm. in their adulthood, they've just, you know, they've be- it's become a self-sabotage and they're just to have a detrimental lifestyle. You know, some people react differently. Some people re- see that and they're like, I'm going to have a positive life and I'm going to make something out of my life. But then some people, you know, in these patterns I've seen, it's like, you know, lack of control when you're younger means or, or it turns into a obsession with control when, when you're older. Mm-hmm. And, and it's just, it is a shame because it's like, that's hard stuff to try to dig into. Sure. Right. And well, it's a real waste of a life. And people that don't get help will continue to live that way. Yeah. And if they don't get help, they just, do you, I feel, and I wonder, it's like, can they figure out, can they do it themselves? Is, or is it, do you think it's no. the best? Okay. No, I don't believe it at all. Look, you're struggling in America with a wild, wild opioid addiction mess. And often it, it happens that you're either sick and you have terrible pain or you've been in an accident and you're prescribed painkiller, which, thank God, helps you with your pain. And then you end up very committed to the mm-hmm. medication. And then from the medication, you know, you buy it in the street. You don't need a prescription because people are very happy to sell it to you and the dealers are passing it out and then you're you know, addicted. And you don't look like the type who would be addicted to heroin, but there you are. Mm. And there you are. Mm-hmm. And it it becomes your master and uh, you give up your entire life for it. But I must say that the gamblers have also given up their lives because without money, how how does this, you don't have a life. You don't really and think you've about already, it. You've, well, you don't think about consequences. You're totally disconnected from consequences. And any gambler will tell you they're not gambling their money anymore because they don't have their money. So they give you a con job and a promise and a story and 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 they become really, really horrible human beings. It becomes terrible, terrible distorted personalities. Mm-hmm. The gamblers, they're lying so. They're so slick. Because they need your money to be able to gamble the next horse race or the next lottery. So for all of these people, so those were you were saying previously recovered patients, right? Or were they just people that left? The ones that you've seen that were gamblers. You're well, the people that-, that gamblers are in my rehab. They're in the rehab. Okay. They're in the rehab up to deaths, up to their eyeballs. They've left their wife and kids, and people are banging on the door, threatening them. It's a horror. It's a horror. Uh, Everybody's mad at the gamblers. Look, everybody's mad at the heroin addict. What are you doing with your life? Everybody's mad at the bulimic anorexic girl 
who's completely thrown away her life in service to uh, a morbid fear of uh, weighing uh, more than 42 pounds. Hmm. What are the what are the um, experiences, the breakthroughs that you've been able to be witness of? Well, that, that's individuals. in um, my book called Love and Kisses from My Padded Cell. Yep. In that book, I write the stories of 10 individuals, men and women, boys and girls, whatever, who have uh, gone on the journey to redemption, to sanity. They've been in recovery and uh, have lived to tell the tale. And can you give us one of those? Those are 100% true stories. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I have those 10 stories, and then in, when same people do insane things, I have many, many stories. I like telling the story. Then I have a book I wrote called My Last Summer as a Fat Girl, which is my autobiography about being a fat girl. Mm-hmm. And so you have three books, which I saw, mm-hmm. and that's on your website, which is ellicats.com. Yep. So people can go on there and they can find the book. You have a short little bio at the bottom sure. and they can all, a little summary, and then they can also purchase it. It's available on Amazon. Yeah. And um, so you've got three books, Love and Kisses from My Padded Cell. And that one has the collection of personal stories of 10 recovering addicts, right? Yeah. And then when sane people do insane things, you provide there that you include in that your six behavioral principles, um, the ones that we mentioned at the beginning of how somebody can turn their life around. Um, these are six steps that people can even start to do on their own, you know, yeah, um, but you do recommend, especially with these in more intense addictions for people to always look for help. Um, and then your last book is my last summer as a fat girl. And this one's actually your memoir. Um, and it's also mentions about the power of the food and how it's had a big influence in your own life. Sure. Right. Those are three books that you have available on your website. Um, and I wanted to ask you in regards to these stories and you can actually give us a summary of one of them, of an, an experience, maybe one that, um, kind of stood out to you the most of somebody who had an addiction, a severe addiction, and was able to transform their life because it is a possibility, you know? And even though, and I think that we've brought a lot of attention to show that these addictions are real, they're not easy to work out of, but oh. they're completely po- it's completely possible. It just requires a lot of will and discipline. And so if you could just share a story with us about something that you've personally experienced being at the rehab center. Um, My personal experience about somebody else. Mm -hmm. Okay. So I write about uh, a man named Monty who ends up becoming a gambler and an overeater and a liar and a sex addict and uh, he comes and he uh, tells his story to me and we work we work very hard and 
apparently the root of his story is the image he had of himself as a young boy. His mom was a big con artist. He had a little sister who was born with Down syndrome, and she was always telling people she needed money to uh, take care of this girl and get her the right kind of help. And the story goes on and on, and he ends up being a gambler and an overreader and a con artist himself and a liar. And uh, his wife even came to work with us, and she looked at him one day and said in front of me, you made me doubt my sanity. She literally believed all his lies, even when she would make a tray of cookies and he would rearrange the cookies. And she said, I thought there were more cookies here. And he would say, no, didn't you realize this is the rose? And she would look and go, yeah, maybe I, maybe huh. I didn't. And he had a, a scandalous relationship with a Russian masseuse. And his wife uh, got some kind of a sense of it. And she got a private detective. And she uh, had his phone tapped. And she heard him talking on the phone with this lady. And it was on some odd level rather comical because... He kept saying to the lady in the Russian accent, what? What? And it sounded like he had a Russian accent. <sighs> and um, a lot of work had to be done to rebuild their trust, to um, reestablish some sense of sanity in that house, in that marriage, in his way of dealing with life. And uh, he turned out okay. He turned out okay, and the story is interesting because he, like many others, had multiple addictions. Mm. Interesting. So that is that common thing, I guess, that, you know, if you have that addictive way of being, you go one thing and then you kind of pick up other ones also. Well, invariably, if I really scratch the surface on our patient's most people have some kind of thing with food or body image. Most people hate the way they look. And another is an issue with money. And another is an issue with sex. Hmm. This, these are themes that reverberate, even though ostensibly you're not here for any of that. You're here because you're an alcoholic. But while we're at it, we're yeah. going to find out there's a food thing, there's a money thing, there's a sex thing, there's a self-image thing. Mm -hmm. And there might even be, and this I've noticed over the last years, there might even be some OCD in there. Control, like obsessive. Disorder. Well, like, like you have to do something or mm -hmm. it has to be in that order or you have to count. Mm. I think that's a great point to bring out. And I, I thank you for that because um, it's not just about the action. There is something deeper that people need to tap into 
that are causing those actions, right? And I think that um, meditation and reflection like can start to maybe help someone to really start seeing that. And of course, support family members, maybe getting some feedback um, on that. And I know that you also had your own experience, as you mentioned in or as you wrote in my uh, your book, My Last Summer as a Fat Girl, mm-hmm. about your own challenges. I think it was specifically about food. Sure. I mean, did you want to talk grace, about- By the grace of God, I never was a drug addict or an alcoholic. I didn't have those kind of uh, attractions and addictions. But from a very early age, I was eating. I mean, I was eating too much. The the first allowance I got was a nickel and I bought a devil dog. I mean, that's how I understood finances and how I understood consumerism. Mm. And that's what I wanted to do. I, my mom didn't have a devil dog at home. I fell in love with it and bought it every day at the candy store on the way to first grade. And then, you know, I had to lie about food. And I remember as a little girl growing up that I would go to different people's houses and say my mom and dad aren't home and we didn't have dinner or some kind of nonsense. Get a little extra something that we didn't have at our house. Sure. I can tell you, Lori, don't faint, that when I was in high school, my mom would sometimes call up my friends and ask if I ate there. Wow. Mm, She was very involved with my plate. She wanted me to be slim and beautiful and smart. I was smart. I was beautiful. I wasn't slim. Mm -hmm. uh, She put me under a lot of pressure with that. A lot of pressure. Do you feel that that maybe caused you to continue on your your course? You better believe it. Obviously, I'll show her because that's what a lot of kids do when somebody pesters them or threatens them or tries to control their relationship with food, they'll sneak it, of course. Mm-hmm. And, then, and then you spend 30 years of your life getting back at your mother. And so how were you able to, in li- later on in life, control that? addiction and change your life? Well, I joined Overeaters Anonymous 26 years ago. Mm. I have the same sponsor for 25 years and I'm, I'm in the program and I love it and I believe it. It's very, very smart, very spiritually expanded, very psychologically uh, masterpiece, mm-hmm. 12-step recovery and Virtually any of these addictions can be uh, saved mm-hmm. and changed. And you bet through working the twelve steps. So they have a twelve-step figure or twelve-step approach. Twelve-step approach, and that's how I live my life today. And also as a meditator. Lori, I've meditated every day of my life for 47 years. Hmm. Meditation is so powerful. Meditation is, is, is the key to being able to really set, your, set the tone and to, to, to get your mindset right 
and to really be present with what you need to be doing. Changed my life 47 years ago. Meditation. Absolutely. What's your, what's your um, approach to meditation? Like how long do you meditate for? What is it that you I meditate about? every morning for 20 minutes, transcendental meditation. And then um, a number of other times during the day, I could be meditating because when I do my guided thinking, when I help my patients through altered states of consciousness, I'm meditating and speaking at the same time. Huh. And to and this this um, guided thinking is one of your innovative approaches. One of the techniques in the book. I mean, when same people do the same things, there are innumerable techniques that Wonderful. I offer. Just take them. Perfect. Use them. Yeah. Perfect. So you you talk about your approaches. Um, in order to really get your mind right and you know help with these these um, tendencies right that people we don't want to have um, these attachments even like to work all that out maybe to start um, you have those techniques in your book when sane people do insane things sure wonderful thank you for that that's amazing that's a mm-hmm. wonderful thing and I read your your website and um, your even the blog that about being on podcasts that your inspiration is to be able to spread your word and what you're doing right. to help people to the world, right. To, to reach more audiences. And so, and you're, you have three amazing books for people to be able to just get, you know, all of that information right there in their hands. I hope that happens because that's all I care about is to hoist, up the spirit of humanity and in some way make the world a better place to be in Absolutely. and not a place where people are choking to death on uh, whoppers or mm-hmm. what are they called or choking to death on being afraid to live where they live because there are bombs being dropped mm-hmm. or choking on their reality that they are refugees and they're being refused entrance to anywhere in the world that might be a safe haven. The world has gotten very crappy and it's also gotten very gorgeous. And we want to stay with the gorgeous, expand the gorgeous and have a life worth living. Absolutely. Yeah. Have a life that you created that you're proud of. Yep. Yep. Because life has become now, society has become now. They've provided so many opportunities now to to progress in life, to have a beautiful life with your family, where you can enjoy more things. But at the same, with the same token, has come more issues like with social media, like adding to self esteem issues and self love, and just sure. has it's become more complex, more complex. Yes, I can say. But and that, more stinky and scary and weird and more spiritual and loving. Exactly. Because so people are two, tapping. Two big things are happening. Yep. And I think that it might be in a way um, learning to handle the complexities in life that are coming because life used to be so simple right? There wasn't all of these extra ways of thinking and teachings and, and all of the job opportunities and all of that before, like it was much simpler. 
And so now as life becomes more complicated, I feel maybe a lot of people can't keep up. People don't know how to cope. And then it just becomes overwhelming. So I don't know. Hopefully, yes, with time, we can start providing, like you're providing these services for people. There are coaches out there online also providing help for people. And so hopefully with that, we can all start to learn how to really live an abundant and beautiful life. Um, I say to that, hallelujah. Yeah. You know what hallelujah means in Hebrew? Uh, Praise God. Praise the Lord. Love it. Ha. Ha is is God, right? Ha is like the name. Yah is God. The name. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah. So anything that has that. Oh, gotcha. 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 Okay. It was on the wrong side. (laughs) Okay. Wonderful. Well, Dr. Kat, I appreciate the conversation today. It's been honestly like one of the most down to earth, genuine conversations I've had here on this podcast. And I just, I love that you're coming now online to share your wisdom, expertise, and your, your love for others. Because I mean, and I genuinely feel that that love is what makes the world go round. Love is what the world does not have enough of, and it needs more of. And so I encourage you to keep Do you going. want me to break out into song? <laughs> the world needs now is love, sweet love. <laughs> That's the only thing that there's just too little love. Yes. Oh, That's man. That's what you were doing. That'll be, your, that'll be your intro song for this episode. <laughs> Thanks a bunch. Thank Absolutely. you so much. And thank, so just you, to, thank you. I had so much fun with you. Oh, me too. And just to finish up, I did want to just let everybody, everyone know if they wanted to reach out to you and mm-hmm. ask you a question or ask about your books, you that they can. My website. Website. Yes, Absolutely. So Ellie Katz. So I'll spell that out. It's Ellie, E-L-L-I-E. Katz is K-A-T-Z. One word. Dot com. Dot com. Yeah, one word. And they can submit a contact form there. It'll go right to you and you can get back to them. Of course. And I will. I answer everybody. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Dr. Katz, for being on today. I truly appreciate the time that you spent. Thank you, Lori. You're a marvelous person. Thank you. Keep doing what you're doing. Thank you. you. And to everyone else, thank you so much. Until next time. That concludes this episode. If you enjoyed it, feel inspired, and would like to hear more, please subscribe to the Relentless Minds podcast via the link in the show notes or visit LoriJimenez.com. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time.